millions of Americans had a personal relationship with someone who brought them joy. And he wasn't just great, he was beautiful to watch. That added a layer to everyone's investment and, and shock during, you know, when the murders happened. Hello, welcome to another episode of On Assignment. I'm your host, Abby Wright, here with my co-host, Lisa Cohen. Hello, Lisa. Hi, Abby. How are you doing, Professor Cohen? I've had some sleep, and I'm feeling much better. <laughs> now that the semester is coming to an end. Yeah. I believe this is, in fact, our last episode of this season of On Assignment. Yes, although we're going to jump right into our summer series, where we're going to be listening to some of our DuPont winners. Excellent. So. We actually just recorded one of them earlier today with Daniel Zwerdling from NPR, which was such a great conversation. So that'll be fun coming up. I think we especially, especially want to spotlight our DuPont winners this time of the year because we are now open for submissions. Uh, it goes so fast, doesn't it? But we are open between now and July 1st to submit uh, for the 2018 DuPont Columbia Awards. And we are welcoming your best work. Find out more about it by visiting our website, dupont.org. And again, July 1 is the deadline. And we honor broadcast, we honor documentary, and best reporting in online audio and video. Today, we're actually going to be hearing from one of our winners, one of our recent winners. Tell us a little bit about it, Lisa. This is uh, OJ Made in America which also won every other award there is out there to win, including last year's Academy Award for Best Documentary. You know, we were both in television news at the time that this story broke. It's uh, It's been many, many years. And I thought there was really nothing more to say about O.J. after all this time and all this coverage. But this is really something quite different. It broke a lot of new journalistic ground, and it also really is about much more than just O.J.'s story. It's about the cultural... Uh, historical context around it, and it's a whole interweaving of uh, the history of race relations in this country. Right. And just for a little background about the story itself, it is quite an epic story um, from start to finish of the celebrated, famous, and infamous O.J. Simpson case back in the 1990s. In case you don't know much about what happened 30 years ago, O.J. was a legendary football star who was charged with murdering his wife, Nicole Brown Simpson, brutally murdering, murdering her, um, and her friend, Ron Goldman, at the Simpson house. It aired on ABC and ESPN as a series under the auspices of ESPN Film. In today's show, we're going to hear from director Ezra Edelman speaking to Professor Betsy West at a Film Friday's presentation of the first part of the documentary, so these are condensed and edited versions of the conversation. And without further ado, we bring you O.J. Made in America. So, Ezra, um, I was working as a producer at ABC News when this story uh, broke. It you know, dominated the news in the way that's hard to describe for some of the younger people in the audience. You must have had your own experiences with the story. I'm just wondering how this all came about, the idea of, of reliving this story and what your initial reaction was. Did you want to do it? And how did it, <laughs> how did this all come about? Um, I had no, I was approached by them to do this um, in a slightly shorter form than it ultimately became. And I would not have 
describe my reaction to it as overly enthusiastic. I live through it, sort of we all as a country and culture lived through it, OD'd on it, and you know, I was very skeptical um, about my ability to add anything to something that's been picked over and over and over and over. And the only thing that was appealing to me was that it was pitched to me as something, while it was shorter than what ultimately became almost eight hours, um, it was pitched to me as something that's going to be five hours of television. So, so the thought that uh, with this um, greater canvas, bigger canvas, I can go back and talk about um, the, the history in Los Angeles, the history of OJ and who he really was that helped explain why everyone lost their minds and why everyone was so, um, you know, and why it became so divisive. Um, I felt that that was the only interesting thing for me about this story was exploring the, the context. Um, for the filmmakers here, I'm wondering if you could talk about the structural issues of handling this amount of material, um, especially for a film that's going to be seen serially. Um, how, how did you, because it's, it's chronological sort of, but then it goes back and forth in time. I mean, how did you, how did you organize it when it turned into five films? Well, and Well, I mean, that's the thing is I never really approached it as anything that was being done serially. Mm -hmm. And I didn't approach it as a series. And I don't really think of it as a series. I just think of it as a one really long movie, even if people aren't going to necessarily watch it that way. I understand most people don't have over seven and a half hours in a day to sit and watch a movie. <laughs> Um, so that sort of alleviated, there wasn't sort of a structural issue of, okay, I have five things and I have to separate them thematically and organize it that way. I, would, I built it more or less chronologically, but there was purpose to that because part of what you needed to experience, in my estimation as a viewer, is trying to live um, through these events and this time emotionally to prepare you for what happens when the murder and the trial happens. So you can understand from a perspective standpoint what a whole community of people have been living through for all these years and not just use them as sort of factual context. I think sort of part of the purpose of this story though, in especially in sort of looking at a story over the course of you know, 40 to 50 years versus two, is that you sort of can really understand the cycle of history um, in American culture and how you know, a lot of things that you know, this sort of, you know, OJ is sort of a character that really sort of mirrors you know, the way our society has devolved culturally, certainly from a celebrity aspect. And, you know, everything to do with race are these questions that we've grappled with, you know, going back to 1947 when he was born. And so in that way, what compelled me to tell the story in the first place is I understood that his life was a way of examining our culture and our country. To answer your question, all that was incidental, but I was very aware that when we were doing this, everything had to do with today. Um, and that's part of why, um, if done well, I knew it would work. Because these are something, even if you're 20 years old and don't know O.J. Simpson from the hole in the wall, you'll sort of understand that these, America, these themes are present. And, you know, and, this, and the story of him is even if it, if it started decades ago, you know, is meaningful and necessary to tell today. There's something mythical in the way that you treat 
um, you know, the OJ football section, I think you really make people understand what made him so, for people like me who are not huge football fans, understand what made him so great, so appealing. So well, I think, you have to under, I think you have to understand why he was, I mean, why he was so beloved and why yeah. people sort of, it was such a shock that this guy of all, I mean, you know, and that <laughs> we, so, so many millions of Americans had a personal relationship with someone who brought them joy and he wasn't just great, he was beautiful to watch. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that added a layer to everyone's investment and, and shock during, you know, when the mm -hmm. murders happened. Mm -hmm. And I think that if you are under 30, you have no idea, you know, this guy's cultural import and, and impact. And I think that that was something that's been lost and I sort of tried very hard to recapture. Mm -hmm. Um, some people may have seen the drama series, People versus O.J. I guess that I read that this was a coincidence, that these two projects have come to fruition at the same time. Was that good or bad? And do you have a sense of how the project's different? Obviously, this is a documentary. I haven't watched it. You haven't watched it? Yeah. You can tell by my face how much I want to talk about it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that, did that it's a coincidence. Yeah. That, I mean, it's, it was a coincidence. I don't know, have, is it good? I haven't seen it. I don't know, anyone seen it? I haven't seen it. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Maybe it will just uh, feed the appetite for people who want to know the real story. That's what I would be saying. <laughs> That's what people say to me to make me feel better. <laughs> I, I think it's true. And uh, I mean, why not? I mean, when you can watch, you know, why not watch 20 hours of OJ? I mean, why stop at 10? I mean, just go to 20. It's a very rich story. You could have gone on and on and on. I think the thing that bothers me a little bit or frustrates me about the existence of that show is that you can, take, you can, you can find drama and create drama in scenes between characters and create emotional connections that you can't necessarily do in this form. And so when you're telling a story over the course of... 10 hours of television and it's just about the trial, you can get into the minds of people in a way that I can't in this medium, whether because they're dead, because they're reticent, because they didn't talk to me. And so I get frustrated by like, oh man, I would have loved to have explored the dynamic between Johnny Cochran and Chris Darden more than I can in this film. And so that's, what's, that's what frustrates me about it. Having said that, you are watching something where people are taking liberties and it isn't necessarily the truth. It's just a different form of storytelling. It's neither bad nor neither worse nor better, in my opinion. Um, I would. I mean, I think I would have trouble if I were telling uh, stories based in in truth. I mean, it was, or sorry, in real life, I would have trouble probably creating excessive taking excessive liberties because I just am so used to being hewn to to the truth. And so you know. Dramatic I, license, you might have. Dramatic license, because I also think that the best movies, even when they take dramatic license, are still better the, the closer they sort of feel um, to the real world, the real life. So, You choose to really emphasize, or, or I guess in some ways to de-emphasize the celebrity part of the story in, in, in a way, or the tabloidy part of the story, the Cato Kalins, the kind of stuff that everybody got obsessed with at the time. Talk about that a little bit. Okay, I'll yeah. parse your words. Yes, I would. I would. 
I did reject the tabloidy aspect of the story, but I do think the story is fundamentally also a story about celebrity in America. And so I think that spoke to everything about who OJ was and what ultimately happened. Um, yeah, I, I had no interest in Cato Kalin because What does Cato Kalin have was, to do with anything? Yeah, yeah or the I mean, Kardashian <laughs> no, but, Association. Yeah, right, but, all, but, all, but all that, like, I kind of knew that that was a road I wasn't going to go down. You know, I didn't want to replay the night of the murder in the same way it had been done. And I did want to avoid those people who sort of gained fame through the most superficial lenses. And that Cato and, and the Kardashians. And I mean, Robert Kardashian was a real figure. In the, I mean, if he were alive, I would have wanted to interview him. Um, I, I wouldn't want to avoid him in the same way I avoided Kato. Mm -hmm. But like, yes, but I didn't have interest. And I also just wanted to make sure that if you're watching this, you sort of understood that this was at least attempting to have a different take on the whole story. I really sort of really researched this thoroughly and thought this out before I ever shot of anything. Because I sort of felt that for me to go into any to approach anyone about this story when many people who have anything to do with this story have been approached so many times over the years and I knew that I was I, I found out very quickly that we were going to that we were sort of suffering with guilt by association to the rest of the, the media which is any all these people who have approached you know been approached over the years they, they're being approached for the smallest, you know, sound bite that could be taken out of context, that could be used in any way, and because of the tabloid nature of the story, that people basically at this point are either so tired of it and they want to put it away, or they just feel burned. And so when someone like me comes and calls them up and says, I want to do this thing, and, and I want to talk to them for a few hours, they're basically like, they're, I mean, everyone was very skeptical. And so the only thing I could do is to be fully prepared in having thought out the story, having learned as much as I could about whoever these people were individually, but also what my approach was. I feel like if I were at all more um, at sea during this process, I feel like I would not have been able to sort of uh, extract what you know ultimately we were able to from the characters. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty extraordinary, the, the, the interviews you got. I mean, uh, how long did that take? Was that the hardest part of the film? Uh, I mean, it was just sort of part of the consistent sort of immersiveness, and what it's sort of what made it especially exhausting is, you know, almost everyone that we were approaching the interview had their own, you know, reticence, and so it was sort of an uphill battle with each person in that way, and so it was just a fight just to get somebody. Who's the last person you got? The last person. Or, you know, the... I mean, I think maybe the last interview I did was Mark Furman. Mm -hmm. um, That's a pretty extraordinary interview. Uh, and, but there was, and there was a reason for that, you know, in terms of you can't just, again, you can't just call people up and say, hey, I'm doing some film about OJ, you want to participate? You sort of have to get to a point into letting people know that you've, re you've crossed a threshold in terms of the, the work and reporting you've done, who you've talked to, for someone like him to be incentivized to sit down. To explain for anyone who's forgotten who Mark Furman is that we don't see in this film, he's the policeman who played a key role yes, in the case and then was revealed to have um, said a number of very racist things in his past which undermined a lot of the case. Is that fair? More or less. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> you, you, you say it. <laughs> well, I mean, I, even the way you said it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, he was sort of like there's a chicken and an egg thing. Mm -hmm. He's a, he was a detective in the LAPD who uh, was uh, one of the four main detectives who um, dealt with the murder that night and, and was one of the four detectives who went to OJ's house initially and went into the house without a warrant um, when while OJ was gone, and he was the one that found um, the bloody glove. Um, and so he became sort of, you know, this, he was the cop who they accused of planting the glove, and he ended up, he had a, a past where he sort of was allegedly, or in fact, a racist, or however you wanted to find that, you know, sort of, and that's sort of, when I sort of even said that, it's like, part of even the film to me is how someone like that, regardless of what you think about him, based on what you remember or what was told to you at the time, you know, he was caricatured as this thing that I think was representative in some form of who he was, but not necessarily to the extreme, you know, he didn't have a copy of Mein Kampf on his, you know, <laughs> mantelpiece as, you know, as it was said. So trying to sort of also understand the impact not only the role that he played in this whole, in the, the murder and the trial, um, but what this whole, whole thing did to him personally as someone who became sort of the guy who the whole case hung on in many ways. So yeah, that was an interesting interview. Yeah. How, how long do the inter your interviews usually last? Long time. Um, the longest interview I did was six and a half hours. Who, who was that one? Uh, his agent, who's not in this part. <laughs> oh, but is in, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. he's in a lot of it. Uh, and most, I mean, I, I sort of asked for a lot of these. I did a lot of three to four hour interviews. Well, you know, they're all, I mean, very rare was an interview under less than two hours. Would you, do you break after a couple hours and let everybody get a break, or do you sometimes uh, I mean, yeah, go? If it's six and a half hours, we take breaks. But if it's, yeah. uh, but if it's two, I mean, there's always a limit, you know? There's sort of people get, can, you can tell rhythmically. I was shocked, actually. People's stamina in this process was greater than what I'm used to. Normally, that you can tell people powering down after a couple hours, and that's why I feel like it's like, just keep going, just keep going, just keep going, just keep going. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, it, was, it varied in terms of if people wanted breaks. I'm the one who usually has to go to the bathroom. <laughs> well, for some of the people you interviewed, this is you know, the defining moment of their lives, and obviously they've been thinking a lot about it and processing it for years and years and years. You know, the one th when I do an interview, I don't have notes. I don't have questions. Um, I mean, I have them somewhere, like, if, like on a break I can maybe, but I mean, especially now, it's funny, like there used to be tape changes, you know, when there, we used to shoot with tapes. And that was always a built-in, like after 30 or 32 minutes, you could like look at something. And so, I mean, honestly, my whole thing is that I want to make all, I want to make every interview a conversation. And the less pointed it can be, it's like from the get-go, I want to just put someone at ease and just look them in the eye and talk, and keep them talking and keep them talking. And you know, you, I think it's the same thing I said earlier about sort of what a lot of people having to do with the story are used to. And I found that as soon as I started sitting, when I sat down and started talking to people, and the first question was not about, did OJ do that? Did, is he guilty? You know, it's like, it was, I'm asking about where they grew up in Los Angeles. I'm asking about a, a much, you know, the canvas was so much greater. 
in a way that I think they were able to sink into their chairs and be at ease a little bit because this wasn't the same type of thing. And this, you know, I think people could tell that we were taking a more thoughtful approach. Um, but so yeah, my whole thing is that if you're gonna sort of take people's time, waste people's time, you better be prepared with sort of knowing um, everything you can about them, why you're sitting there interviewing them, and, and the story you're trying to tell. And I think that's the sort of best advice I could offer. It's kind of jumping ahead in a way, but um, you know, I just so remember when the verdict came down, and I think most people here know um, that it was a not guilty verdict, but it was an amazing day. I remember being in the office and just how stunned everyone was. But I should say, really, how stunned the white people in the office were. Um, and most of us were white, uh, and everybody was convinced he was guilty, and everybody was just shocked. But I also remember that there were a few African Americans who were not stunned, and I was just kind of dumbfounded by that. And I think this begins to explain uh, some of what that was. Hopefully. But what I found pretty amazing was that there was still a profound sort of lack of understanding um, even to this day, about people's reactions afterwards. And it's an interesting thing, because it's a story so much, you know, yes, it's a story about race in America in many ways. Um, but it's funny how in the way you said it, it's almost like part of the film is oriented towards a white audience who didn't understand issues and, and emotional, and didn't have an, an, any emotional context and understanding for both, for either the investment into OJ during the trial and or the reaction to um, the acquittal. If 20 years later you can watch something and understand those issues that were at play during the trial, then I sort of feel like we did our job. Thank you to Ezra Edelman for coming and speaking to our students. Now, let's have some recommendations. Lisa, I have something that I wanted to mention that has become part of my daily morning routine these days. In these exciting times that we're living in... Where you just can't keep up. From one moment to the next, you want to know what's going on in an urgent, thoughtful way, hopefully with some context. I've started listening to the New York Times podcast, The Daily, um, and I have to say they are doing a really good job of keeping up with rapidly changing developments in a whole host of news stories, most of many of which have to do with our new president um, and the investigation into Russia. Um, so that has become something that I am enjoying listening to. I am amazed at their quick turnaround. Um, but, you know, you get to hear from reporters on Capitol Hill and in the Washington Bureau and these are the people who have these incredible sources that are leaking explosive information to them. So um, I and so recommend does it, it. Does it start with, you know, a roundup of the top stories or does it go behind the scenes? You it's, know, they actually go in depth into one story oh. in particular. And then at the end, they'll do they'll suggest other things to keep an eye on for the day. Um, but so that I actually like that, that they delve into one issue or flesh out one topic. I feel like they should probably start doing it twice daily at this point. I think they have had to do some <laughs> really? twice a day, yes. 
Ah, that's interesting. I have a little something that shows up in my email. It's called WTF just happened. <laughs> <laughs> it just recap it, it reencapsulates like news from Washington to say to say euphemistically. Yes, this is along those lines, but a little more editing or yeah. So I would recommend the thing that I've sort of been immersed in for the last, I don't know, two or three weeks now, which is um, my students have just finished their capstone projects for the video storytelling class that I taught. And I'm really proud of them. They did a really great uh, series of short docs. And they didn't get years like the OJ film, but they, you know, in a couple of months, they turned they turned around really impressive work. So they've been spending a lot of very long nights in the edit rooms, and I've been spending a few with them as well. I would recommend that people could actually go online to... How can I see these films? <laughs> you can. You can go, well, you can see a few of them. You can go to www.dividedstories.wordpress.com, and... Uh, we have pass protected them, so actually when you get there, you have to watch the video by typing in a password, which I'm going to give you the secret password is uh, all caps V like Victor, S like Sam, T like Tom, VST 2017. Well, it's a yeah. great congratulations, first of all, on another successful semester. Thank and um, it is hugely impressive to see what students accomplish in their time in this building. And um, you had some really talented, interesting stories this year. I did. I, I had a group of young, all young women. They were all international students. And they really um, took to heart the theme, which was divided, uh, stories about inequity and division, and came up with really actually poignant and beautiful stories with subjects that they followed intensively and, uh, and that you grew to love and care about. Congratulations. Thank you. So next up, we're going to be starting on our series, our summer series, and uh, profiling our some of our DuPont winners, which is always fun to catch up with them and hear about what they're doing and pull back the curtain on great journalism and get some advice for our students. And once again, inspire everyone listening to submit for the 2018 DuPont Columbia Awards. And uh, the deadline again is July 1st. You can go to our website at www.dupont.org and get more information on how to apply. This episode was brought to us by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. Thanks to them and to the Columbia Journalism School. And this episode of On Assignment was produced by Chava Gurari. Our music is by Dylan Nowick and the Free Music Archive. And our sound engineer today was partly our DuPont fellow Meg Dalton and our special projects coordinator, Millie Christie Dervaux. A big thank you to our DuPont fellows who are graduating, which I cannot believe, Val Caval, Kim Flores, and the aforementioned Meg Dalton. It's a bittersweet moment because they are finishing up the semester, and their time with us is coming to an end. We will miss you guys, but we'll watch for all the great things you're going off to do. And maybe you'll be back someday sitting in the booth with us as the subject of one of our On Assignment podcasts. From your mouth to God's ear. Follow us on Twitter at OnAssignmentPod and find us at OnAssignmentPodcast.org. 
You can subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to share us with your friends. Until next time, everybody. After graduation, we'll be back with our special summer series. Can't wait. <laughs>